Hello there. Welcome to the podcast that we call Frenchie, a show dedicated to the stories and legacies of the French-speaking Cajuns of World War II, as told by the veterans themselves. I'm your host, Jason Terrio. For 20 years, I've been interviewing World War II veterans and capturing their personal stories. Many of these veterans, natives of the Bayou Country in South Louisiana, were Cajuns, people of Acadian descent. Like their forebears, these Cajuns grew up speaking French as their first language. But unlike generations before, these Cajuns experienced a tidal wave of ridicule for speaking French and an Americanization process that sought to do away with this so-called backcountry language and culture, a shift in attitudes by society in general and by the Cajuns themselves, tended to view the French-Cajun language as a handicap and the people who spoke it as low-class citizens. Cajun boys and girls who spoke French at school were often punished, and many grew up ashamed of their language and culture. But all that changed in the 1940s, when these same Cajuns left home and discovered, on the one hand, a world completely different from their own, but on the other hand, a world uniquely similar to theirs. When the Cajuns arrived in French-dominated territories like North Africa and Europe, their ability to speak French proved invaluable to military operations, and it had a profound impact on their sense of a Cajun identity. What emerged from this unique wartime experience was a long-lost pride in their heritage. When the army needed bilingual interpreters, they called on Frenchie to bridge the language gap. In this episode, we follow the adventures of another French-speaking Cajun of OSS, Sam Broussard. Although he was one of several, perhaps dozens of Cajuns who served in the Office of Strategic Services during World War II, Sam had a rather unique experience in France and Belgium, working behind the lines with the resistance forces. He also had a successful career as a businessman and as a public servant. Sam was influential in the creation of CODAFIL, Council for the Development of French in Louisiana. Although he died in the 1990s, we are fortunate to have recovered two audio interviews with Sam from the 1980s, one of which is entirely in French. And thankfully, the Broussard family has preserved and shared with us a treasure trove of letters that Sam wrote during the war. Some of them believe it or not, are written in French. Throughout this episode, we will hear about the history of the Broussard family, about how Sam was recruited by the OSS, and about the interesting experiences that he had during the invasion of Normandy and subsequent clandestine operations in that region, where he led a team of French Maquis on dangerous missions behind enemy lines. Brace yourselves. This is not a Hollywood script. This is indeed the stuff of legend retold by one of the true American heroes of World War II and a key figure in the preservation of the French language in Louisiana. Without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, this is Sam Broussard. Of course, you know, in in South Louisiana, I think there are more Broussards in these 12 southern Louisiana parishes than any other family. Uh, The Broussards came from, from Canada uh, many, many years ago, they were, we were told that they were leaders of the Indian tribes in that area. And uh, when they started to migrate toward this area, I think there were three brothers who came here. They were, they were leaders of the Indians over there, and they moved here, I guess, with Indians and with uh, 
French-descended people, because all the people who moved here at that time were French. They came here, and uh, uh, apparently they must have been pretty good lovers, because they've really populated the area with the, with the Broussards. They've settled along, along the Bayou Teche, most of them, and from there, of course, scattered over in other areas. This was a very fertile hunting grounds and good alluvial soil to, to form. They cleared land and began to farm, and of course they had little country schools, and all the schools at the time were in French. Mm -hmm. My daddy doesn't speak, speak English at all. He speak, spoke only French. My mother spoke and wrote English and French. But uh, in those days, that uh, the people who settled here came from, I mean, were of French origin and actually spoke French. Like most Cajuns of that generation, Sam grew up speaking French at home and only learned English later on in school. He was raised in Brobridge. His family grew cotton and sugarcane and lived a comfortable life out in the country. Unlike most Cajuns, Sam attended college. He went to Southwestern University, which is now UL and Lafayette, and finished with a degree in agriculture in 1934. During the late 1930s, he worked in the CC camps in North Louisiana with the Soil Conservation Service. Sometime in 1942, Sam, who had been a member of the Brobridge National Guard, was called into military service at Camp Walters in Texas. He was assigned to a pioneering and engineering school to teach new combat engineers the art of camouflage, demolition, bridge building, and all types of communication. In early 1944, a call came down from Washington, D.C., looking for French-speaking officers to join America's top-secret agency, the OSS. I was assistant battalion commander when and we were bivouacking on the Brazos River, and the battalion commander came to me. In fact, I was digging my foxhole to go to bed. The battalion commander came to me and said that he had received a telegram from Washington that they needed two French-speaking officers with staff experience and that I was one of the officers. So I asked him, I said, uh, I said uh, Colonel, what do you think it is? He says, I don't know, I, uh, I have an idea, some kind of, he says, strictly volunteer. He says, but being you speak French, it must be some kind of French underground work or uh, that type of work. He says, uh, it's up to you. He says, I don't want to lose you, but if you want to go, it's up to you. So we talked for a while, finally he said, look, why don't you Go to bed and tomorrow morning we'll talk about it. And I said, that's fine. So the next morning, the first thing he did, he came to the, where I was bivouacked there and he asked me what I had decided. I said, well, I've decided to go. So he says, well, we better get you back to the camp. So sure enough, he sent me to the camp and uh, that night I decided we better have a little party. So I called my officer friends and my girlfriends and we were at the officer's club and I was paged on the loudspeaker system said for me to report to Dallas at six o'clock the next morning to go to Washington. So I went there, went to Washington, and it, uh, the OSS, the oh so sexy <laughs> <laughs> Office of Strategic Services mm -hmm. is what it was. And of course, I didn't know at the time. But they kept me there for about eight or 10 days interviewing and finding out from different people who knew me like President Fletcher and Colonel Bruno, who was my battalion commander and a bunch of other people. 
to find out what kind of people I, my, I came from because it was strictly top secret deal. So about 10 days after they said, well, go on home, straighten out your business because you're going overseas. So I went on in and I, the next day after I was here, I got another wire to come back to Washington. So got to Washington and it wasn't but a few days after that until they shipped me to, to England. And there we underwent all kind of training to uh, find, uh, to know what was going on with the resistance forces in France and in Belgium. And I was in charge of what they called a cardex system because I spoke French more fluently than the rest. Of course, there were a lot of people in OSS, you know, because we were trained to be dropped in France in teams of three people. There was one British, one American, and one Frenchman so that we could have all kind of communication. We could communicate back with OSS, with our uh, uh, BBC in, in London. And uh, we, we were supposed to work with the resistance forces, the Maquis, the underground forces. We were being trained for that. And uh, of course, I was a paratrooper. And they decided that they, they kept 12 officers to go with the first division to make the D the landing, and I was one of those that they picked for that. In fact, I sat in on General Eisenhower's briefing uh, just a few days before we landed, and there wasn't, I don't think there were 50 officers that were on that group. We were supposed to have landed on the 5th, but because of weather condition, that changed. But anyway, uh, we got on board, and we stayed on board about five days before we landed, moving from one place to another. We had 5,000 ships on water that before landing, all over the, and there weren't too many places where you could land in France because of the steepness of the hills. And uh, at Omaha Beach and Sword Beach and some of these other beaches that were there, there was enough enough uh, uh, grade in the in where you could climb up there. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> while being on the ship, finally, of course, Eisenhower was there, and he was uh, getting information from, from the meteorologist. And they said, today, you, the fit is not going to be good because the wind is in the wrong directions. The water's too high. If the men, when they jump off of the boats, it's going to be too much water. They'll drown. You lose too much. You've got to wait another day. And sure enough, that night, about midnight, the, the water began to recede. And of course, we landed that, that night from 12 o'clock to about 4 o'clock. We landed 18,000 troopers in Normandy. On so the you, beach? Not in, not in Normandy itself, in Normandy, off of the beach. Because we had to get, they had divisions up on, 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 the, on the inside. Mm -hmm. So. We got there, landed, and when we did, of course, the Germans were up looking at us. They were well camouflaged. They had, they had dug into the ground, into the hill, then the positions for their guns, and the gun would fire in this direction. This other gun would fire in this direction, and we'd fire at them. I mean, by, with, a, with a machine guns and a cannon, but you couldn't hit them because they were too deep in, 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 the, in the hills itself. And they just killed. When we jumped off a board, there were dead Americans floating all over. And uh, of course, as God have it, we made it up on the hill and made it up on the on top of the beach. And then we lost 9,000 Americans the first two or three days there. 
Once at Normandy, Captain Broussard was assigned to lead a small special forces detachment within OSS. His mission? To find leaders of the French resistance and to select individuals who would then be assigned to various American units to attack German positions. His team's first objective was to dislodge enemy forces in the Conitan Peninsula in order to capture the strategic port of Cherbourg. As the lead intelligence officer, his ability to communicate effectively with the French underground was imperative to his mission and to his survival. In this next audio recording from 1982, Sam is being interviewed in French by James Fontenot, host of En Francais television program on the Louisiana Public Broadcasting Network. The host asks about the importance of speaking French for these vital D-Day missions with the French underground. Vous étiez tout francophone. Il fallait parler français pour être capable d'assister les soldats. On parlait tous groupes, on parlait français. Un certain, un certain montant, une certaine quantité de français. Oui. Et puis, euh, après le débarquement, il m'attachait avec un, une division, la huitième division. Je veux dire, la 8e, le huitième corps, et après ça, le sixième corps. Et mon but était de m'occuper et puis interroger les Français pour être sûr que c'était des membres de résistance parce qu'il y avait beaucoup de résistance en France. Les maquis, ce qu'on appelle les maquis, ils ont fait des, des ouvrages qui étaient très, très, très intéressants. On, 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 on obtenait l'information pour passer à l'armée la, américaine, comme ça on pouvait savoir où les, les munitions étaient, où le pétrole était, où l'état-major était, où les canons étaient, où leurs forces étaient. In this exchange, Sam explained that speaking French was absolutely necessary to his work with the French resistance. His main job was to find these resistance people, interrogate them, and put them to work with units of the American army. The Maquis, as they were called, would pass along information, such as where to locate the enemy ammunition depots, oil depots, the general staff, and artillery in various units. Their work, he said, was very, very interesting. Sam wrote a memo on June 17th, just a week after the D-Day landings, that explained the objective of this dangerous but important assignment. It is felt that from a tactical point of view, he wrote, the attaching of organized French resistance workers to military units is the way in which resistance could do the most good. However, they must know the area which is to be attacked as to terrain, minefields, obstacles, and fortifications. They should be attached to the units primarily as guides, but should be so armed as to defend themselves. All the active resistance groups in the peninsula are being contacted for the detailed activities which they have carried on during the capture of the peninsula. From there, Sam and his mobile team, which included a radio man and a jeep driver, moved further south in search of additional resistance fighters to lead the American forces deep into the heart of the Normandy Bocage. On July 8th, Sam located a few resistance workers and attached them to the 4th and 83rd Infantry Divisions to guide the frontline troops through the region. In another memo, he wrote, After sufficient interrogating and checking with the resistance groups in the vicinity of Carentin, four men were found suitable and volunteered for this work. It was agreed that those resistance workers would be given GI uniforms, rations, and when necessary, arms to carry on their respective duties. Their jobs were to lead reconnaissance patrols, contact civilians for enemy information, and select positions and routes of approach toward enemy territory. It is felt that there will be no time lost when information is passed through such members of resistance, Sam wrote. From Normandy, 
Sam's team advanced across enemy lines into the center of enemy-occupied Brittany. In late July and early August of 1944, Brittany became the epicenter of OSS Special Forces operations. Mission ALOS involved a coordinated parachute dropping of several OSS teams, known as Jedbergs, and to equip and supply the French underground with weapons. Major Sam Broussard and his team made contact on the ground with the leader of the resistance forces, a Colonel Eon, at the headquarters in the town of Carrienne. From there, Sam and his French counterpart led coordinated attacks against enemy columns and secured the opening of a major highway for General Patton's 3rd Army. Some years later, the French colonel wrote to Sam about this important mission. I will always remember you during the night of combat firing away at my side with your small U.S. team in the middle of my Fritz resistance fighters in their wooden shoes, he wrote. In this next interview segment, Sam talks about his covert operations with the Maquis in Brittany, the deadly encounters with German units, and how he hid out in a barn to evade enemy capture. Traversé le dingue, j'étais dans la ville de Kerry, un petit village à Bretagne. D'abord, nous avons été jusqu'à Cherbourg, à Normandie. De là, nous avons été à Brest. De là, nous avons pris direction de Nantes et Paris. J'ai travaillé dans le village de Kerry avec un groupe de, de, de maquis. Même, on a parachuté des munitions, et puis des rations, et puis du linge, et toutes sortes d'affaires qu'ils avaient besoin. Et c'est moi qui dirigeais le groupe. Là. Nous avons attaqué l'après-midi un groupe d'Allemands. On a tué plusieurs. C'est moi qui ai donné la direction, donné le feu. On a tué plusieurs. Le soir, on a eu l'information qu'ils ont été renforcés leur position et ils ont recyclé le village. Alors, moi, j'étais le seul Américain qui était là. Les Français m'ont dit qu'ils m'ont pris et m'ont emmené dans un voisin. Et j'ai couché dans le magasin, dans le foin ce soir, ça, là, pour être sûr qu'ils ne trouvaient pas les Américains là. Le lendemain matin, ils m'ont réveillé avec une une tasse de café au lait en disant qu'ils avaient reculé plutôt que venir. Oui. Et là, finalement, on a organisé encore, les Américains finalement nous ont joints là-bas et on a pris ce groupe. C'était des Russiens, des Russiens blancs qui étaient avec les Allemands. Ils sont, à la fin de la guerre, ils étaient tous ensemble. Translation. I crossed the line and I went to the town of Carrienne, a small village in Brittany, after going to Cherbourg and Normandy. From there, we went to Brest, then to Nantes and Paris. I worked in the village of Carrion with a group of Maquis. We dropped ammunition and rations and some clothes and all the things that they needed. And I led the group there. In the afternoon, we attacked a group of Germans. We killed several. I was the one who gave orders to fire. We killed several that evening. We got the information that they were strengthening their positions and that they were going to surround the village that night. So, being the only American who was there, the French told me that, they took me to a neighbor and I slept in a hayborn that night to be sure they couldn't find me. The next morning, they woke me up with a cup of café au lait and said the Germans had backed off rather than coming. And then finally, we organized again and the Americans finally joined us there. A French newspaper article published some years after the war memorialized this mission in which Sam played such an important role. The guerrilla warfare explosion unleashed by the French forces of the interior enabled the Patton army rushing in from Normandy to penetrate almost without firing a shot to the very depths of Brittany. Imagine, just for a moment, the emotions that Sam must have felt in those harrowing situations. At 32 years old, he was certainly older than most American GIs in combat. 
But regardless of his maturity level, his background skills, or his training, here he was running with a group of French underground people in a foreign land on the other side of the world from his hometown in Brobridge. He had to rely almost completely on his ability to communicate with these foreign allies and to trust their judgment and experiences, and vice versa. Every little nuance in his French vernacular and patois had to be understood and interpreted. His survival depended on how well he spoke to the French people and how well he understood them and how they understood his instructions. Throughout all his exploits and close calls with the enemy, Sam still found time to write letters back home to his parents and siblings. In this July 1944 letter from Normandy, France, Sam wrote, I travel a great deal and see the area already taken. In fact, I know every town in the Schoberg Peninsula. My work is still interesting. I like it so much. The war won't last much longer, but I might ask to remain here after it's all over. So far, I like the people, and they live a good life. Had a good dinner yesterday with good French people. They discuss everything at mealtime. Incidentally, they say my French is very good, and so is my accent. Have been practicing regularly, and have learned much. Sam made a habit of discussing the benefit of his French language in his letters back home. In some cases, he actually chose to write in French. In this piece, read in French by David Marcantel, Sam shows his unique ability to write in another language. Cher mère, j'écris quelques mots pour vous demander si vous aviez quelques pacans pour m'envoyer. Dear Mother, I write a few words to ask you if you would have a few pecans to send me. Pecans here are very scarce, and cold weather like we have today calls for pecans. If the pecan trees produce well this year, send me a box of 10 or 15 pounds, please. I hope that Whitney will come to visit me this week or next. He will be very happy if he is able to have an airplane ride to come here. I am happy that you sent my winter clothes. I think that we will change to winter clothes on the 15th or 20th of October. My khaki clothes will be sent by express later. Love to you and Pop. Sam. Mon linge de khaki va être envoyé par express plus tard. Love to you and Pop. Sam. Sam certainly had a deep understanding of and appreciation for his French language and French heritage. In this next wartime letter, read by one of his grandsons, Chris Jones, Sam makes some rather poignant remarks about the future of the French language in his native land of Cajun country. What's remarkable about this insight is that his concern for the fate of his native language back home must have been influenced by his unique experiences as a French-speaking intelligence officer working for months behind the lines with the French country folks. My French gets plenty practice and people say it is good, but that's just to make me feel good. I have improved very much in getting the finer points of the beautiful French language. It's just too bad the good people of Louisiana had to let a beautiful language as that slip between their fingers. It was just a lack of study and proper application. It is like my prayers in French. I would regularly say, but didn't know what I was saying. I'm afraid Louisiana is getting completely away from it. It's no wonder he later became an advocate for Codafil and for the preservation of Louisiana French. Throughout nearly all of his overseas ventures, Sam was surrounded by French speakers. 
In this En Francais interview, many years later, he discussed the importance of the Frenchy Cajuns in World War II. Est-ce qu'il y avait des autres Cajuns, des, des, Fran des francophones de la Louisiane, là? Mm, qui, non, que, pas dans cette... Il y en a plusieurs qui ont servi, donc, dans le oh, service si. militaire en France comme interprète. Ah, oui. Et tout oui, ça. oui, oui, beaucoup. Il y avait, dans la Louisiane, il y avait Lacoste, qui est maintenant à Nouvelle-Orléans, qui est avec nous. Et je crois que c'est le seul de la Louisiane, il était tout partout. C'est très intéressant, mais c'était pas rigolo, hein, mm. ce premier jour. Mais pendant la guerre, ils étaient très contents, très fiers de faire des connaissances des Américains qui parlent français, naturellement. The interviewer asked if there were other Cajuns, other French speakers from Louisiana in this particular unit. Sam responded that only one other soldier, a fellow by the name of Lacoste from New Orleans, was in his unit. However, there were many others who served as interpreters in military service in France. They were everywhere, meaning the French Cajuns. It was very interesting work, Sam said, but it was not a laughing matter, especially early on. Naturally, during the war, the French people were very happy and proud to meet Americans who spoke French. Sam's adventures with resistance forces did not end with the Allied victory in France. After spending several weeks working out of an office in Paris, Sam was reassigned to Special Forces Detachment duties behind the lines in Belgium. In his letters home, Sam was very discreet about his military activities, but he did give his folks a rather generic description of his work in the office. Sam wrote this next letter from Belgium in the winter of 1945, shortly after the Battle of the Bulge. The people are nice and the girls are très jolies. If one can mix up a little French with it all, it isn't bad. I act as everything at camp, from officer in charge of Belgian, French, Luxembourg, and German liaison section, to interpreter for cooks and generals. All civilian problems and difficulties with Belgium and Luxembourg troops are thrown in my lap. Most of the time it goes smoothly, but at times I hit bumps, as on all paved roads. All in all, I'd say it's working pretty good. In this next segment from En Français, recorded in 1982, Sam talks about a Lieutenant Bichel, who was one of the leaders of the Belgian underground. He and Sam became good friends during the war and, by happenstance, reconnected many years later during one of Sam's many return trips back to Europe. Un officier que je travaillais avec, euh, belge, il y a un ami, un, ami, un ami de lui qui est venu ici avec le maire, il était peu soupe avec le maire de ville de Nouvelle-Libérie, il m'a invité parce que moi je parlais français. Et je lui ai dit que je travaillais avec un officier qui s'appelait dans ce temps-là le lieutenant Michel. Mais il dit, je le connais. Je dis, tu veux pas me dire? Mais il dit, oui. Mais je dis, pour bonté, donne les mes nouvelles. Arrive là-bas, il, il contacte le colonel maintenant. Et il m'a envoyé une lettre qui m'avait écrit après la guerre, s'il me trouvait dans les États-Unis. Alors, euh, un an après, je suis allé à, à, Belge, à Belgique. Et puis vraiment, c'était lui, il avait 34 ans, je ne l'avais pas vu. Sam and his Belgian buddies stayed in close contact and visited each other in their respective hometowns several times. The two men visited for the last time in 1994, when Sam and his family went to France for the 50th anniversary of D-Day. A year later, Sam passed away at the age of 82. His obituary in the local newspaper mentioned his long list of life accomplishments. War hero, battalion commander of the National Guard, businessman, rancher, crawfish former, horseman, and two-term state senator. 
but his role in helping to farm Codafil may be his most important legacy, the story noted. By doing that, he helped ensure not only that his name and efforts will live on, but also that a culture that catches the eye of world-famous choreographers will be able to hold on to its traditional roots while growing the vitality and finding new forms of expression. We hope that this podcast tribute to Sam Broussard will add to his proud legacy. This concludes this episode of the Frenchie Podcast. Join us for more of the fascinating stories of the French-speaking Cajuns of World War II as told by the veterans themselves. I'm your host, Jason Theriot. Special thanks to the Broussard family and to Sammy Broussard Jr. for their generous donation to this production and to Louisiana Public Broadcasting. LPB's Louisiana Digital Media Archive seeks to preserve Louisiana media history for future generations. You can see LPB's entire collection of the En Francais series on the Louisiana Digital Media Archive website. Music provided by Josh Caffrey and Chris Segura. Audio engineering and editing done by Chris Segura.